one announcement and one special occasion. Uh, the announcement is that the first Sunday in January, we will have a joint service with Grace Community Church in Westminster. So there are sister church across town up on the north side. We're going to go there. And uh, the reason for that is partly practical, partly also theological. <laughs> the, the theological part is that we are part of a family of churches. The church of Christ is bigger than this church. It's all over the world. It's, it spans generation and ages. But we don't always get to see that invisible truth unless we're actually with others beyond us. And so we have the opportunity, because we have a church right across town, a sister church in our denomination, that we can join together with once in a while. Last time was a year ago, and uh, we're going to do it again. So first Sunday in January, we're all going up there. So FYI, put that on your calendar. <clears throat> the practical reason is because some of us are going to Rancho 3M that day. I'll be gone. Uh, Todd will have preached the week before, and so it'll be too soon of a, too soon, too soon of a turnaround to preach again. And Mike Robles, the only guy up in the North Church that weekend, uh, he was going to come down here and preach for us, but then everybody left. Uh, Tony's going on sabbatical, two guys are going to relay, so it leaves him. So anyway, with a, hey, let's just get together, why not? One big happy family. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to do. January 7, first Sunday in 2024. That's the only announcement. The special occasion, though, is a child dedication. <clears throat> Eric and Elizabeth Santee will be dedicating Lucas, and I see he has the uh, storied, historic, uh, bat, uh, not baptismal, dedication, christening, is that what we're calling it? Okay, you can hang on, i got to talk a little bit, but uh, you'll be up here soon enough. <laughs> I want to explain what a dedication is and what it isn't. <clears throat> So dedication of a child is not a sacrament of the church. It's not something that we are commanded to do in Scripture, unlike communion or baptism, which are ordinances that the Lord left us with. Those things point to the gospel of Christ. Communion, which we had this morning, remembering his death and what it means for us, the forgiveness of sins. Baptism, the entry into the community, into the Christian family, where we show our faith by going down underwater and being raised again and connecting our faith with Christ who was buried and raised. So those are ordinances, those are sacraments. Dedication is not that. However, it has significance. There's a reason that it's been a tradition in Christian churches for a long time because it's an opportunity for parents to publicly pledge before the church their intentions regarding the raising of this child. Uh, doing it before a church is a way of recognizing that the community of Jesus Christ is a crucial environment for raising kids to grow up to know and love Jesus Christ and follow in His ways. So this dedication is, is a pledge. It's a threefold pledge. One is recognizing and thanking God that we have a child. That's a gift from God. Uh, expressing desire for that child to follow Christ as Savior, their desire and their intent to instruct Him in the ways of the Lord, um, and also to acknowledge their dependence on God to parent that child. So that's what makes it an act of worship. It's, it's an expression that this child belongs to the Lord, and He has given this child to us to raise Him in the ways of the Lord, and that's our deepest desire is that He will go that way. 
um, and that we need the church to come around and help us with that. So a model for it is when Hannah brought her son Samuel to the temple to dedicate him in 1 Samuel 1. You might remember Hannah. She had no kids. Uh, She was tormented that she had no kids. And she was praying and asking the Lord that she could conceive. And she finally did. And when she bore Samuel, uh, she, she took him to the temple and, and, and presented him there to the Lord. And, and she said this, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So that's an act of worship, an act of faith, recognizing God as the giver, and also he has a purpose for this child's life, and we want to follow that purpose. So that's what we're doing this morning, dedication. So now I can proceed with that if I could have Eric and Elizabeth and Lucas come up here. And... uh, Where's a good place to do this? How about, yeah, that's good. <clears throat> uh, happy and bright-eyed today. Very good. Hi there. <laughs> what a great thing. It's a privilege to participate for the third time in dedicating one of your children. First Caleb, then Andrew, now Lucas. Um, and it's a great thing that we're doing this because it's just a reminder, it's no small task to raise a child in the world in any generation, but there are so many challenges to doing what your heart is, is desiring to do, which is to raise him in the ways of the Lord. And um, so this is a special occasion. It, God's heart for Lucas is from Luke eighteen sixteen. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. That's his desire for Lucas uh, and for all of us. So we respect and honor your desire to uh, raise him and lead him towards Jesus. So I'm going to ask you five questions, which I've asked two other times before. (laughs) They shouldn't be new. It's a pledge. It's a promise of what you'll do for Lucas, depending on the Lord to do it. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to ask those questions and then pray words of dedication over him and then a blessing over you and him. Uh, So let's proceed. Eric and Elizabeth, uh, please declare the intentions of your heart by answering these questions. Do you recognize Lucas as the gift of God and give heartfelt thanks for God's blessing? Do Do you now dedicate him to the Lord who gave him to you, surrendering all worldly claims upon his life in the hope that he will belong wholly to God? Do you pledge his parents that with God's fatherly help, you will bring up Lucas in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, making every reasonable effort with patience and love to build into his life the word of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the sword of the Spirit? Do you promise to provide through God's blessing for the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual needs of your son looking to your own Heavenly Father for the wisdom, love, and strength to do so. And do you promise God helping you to make it your regular prayer that by God's grace, Lucas will come to trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of his sins and for the fulfillment 
of all of God's promises to him, even eternal life, and in this faith, follow Jesus as Lord and obey his teachings. Excellent. All right, going to pray the words of dedication over you. Hey there. This is Lucas Ray Santee. Lucas, wow, that is such a beautiful face. <laughs> Lucas, together with your parents who love you dearly, and this people who care about the outcome of your faith, we dedicate you to God, surrendering together with them all worldly claims upon your life in the hope that you will belong wholly to the Lord forever. And all God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> for you all. May the Lord give you wisdom in training up Lucas in the way he should go. May you find the Lord to be your rock and your refuge in the perplexing and difficult situations that come in parenting. May you be upheld in faith that God's grace will be sufficient for you in all things. And for Lucas... May you learn at an early stage how to refuse the evil and choose the good. May you hear God's call on your life to follow Jesus in sincere saving faith. May you find courage to face the challenges of this world and overcome them through Christ. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Yay! There will be a certificate coming sometime. Excellent. We have children's ministry, yes? All right. All the way up through 10 years old. Heading that way, if you would benefit from that. Thank you, teachers and helpers. Well, if you're not a teacher or helper or somebody under 10 years old and you're staying here, please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. So this month we're celebrating the advent, the arrival of Jesus Christ into the world, born on Christmas Day. At least December 25th is the day that we celebrate when that happened. Who knows what the actual day was? Um, but that's what we're celebrating, his advent. Our current sermon series is to explain why that's worth celebrating, Jesus coming into the world. We take one passage from each of the four Gospels where we hear from Jesus what his explanation is. Why did he come? So our text this morning is Mark 2, verses 13 to 17. If you'd follow along with me as we read from God's Word, it'll also be projected He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord, if not for that truth, none of us would be in this room listening to your words. Because our reality is, as Ephesians 2 says, dead in our trespasses and sins, apart from your saving work, apart from your pursuit. <clears throat> But we need ears to hear it. We need hearts to receive it again this morning. You have something to teach us, not just something that might have happened in our past if we're, if we're believers, but something that is always true and will be true forever. So open up our hearts again to the gospel, to your call, to the application to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. There's a common theme in the life and ministry of Jesus. He often did what was unexpected, even what was considered revolutionary among his people, the Jews. And uh, this made things very uncomfortable for his disciples who followed with him. For example, one time Jesus was found in a conversation with a Samaritan woman who had a sexual uh, past <laughs> and present. Um, she was considered the lowest of the low in society at that time, disreputable person. They found him talking with her, and they were surprised. Why would he do that? Another time, Jesus praised a man who was considered an enemy of Israel, a centurion, a military officer of the occupying Roman Empire. And he praised this man as having greater faith than anybody in Israel. And then not to mention the many times Jesus confronted the religious leaders of Israel. They were supposedly the holy men, zealous for God and His law, but He once called them a brood of vipers, snakes. He did what was unexpected. He said what was unexpected, even revolutionary. But that wasn't because He was just edgy and He liked pushing the boundaries and causing trouble. It wasn't because he was just trying to be countercultural and he liked to get a reaction out of people. No, it was because Jesus reveals God to us. And God is not like us in so many ways. Isaiah 55, my ways are higher than your ways, says the Lord. And so those ways are going to seem unexpected and countercultural and even revolutionary when we see them acted out in God the flesh, walking among us. And none of God's ways that's more unexpected than this one in Mark 12. Um, 
None of them are more unexpected in, in Mark chapter 2, that is. Here's what's unexpected. The holy God came into the world in human flesh to call unholy people into relationship with himself. That's unexpected. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We're going to unpack what that means and what it means for those who follow Jesus as his disciples. Uh, let's look at this account and learn from it. It begins with a revolutionary action, which was, I'll call it, eating with the despised. This is what God does, God the Holy One does in the flesh when he comes to earth. He comes and he eats with the unholy, with the despised. The account starts with Jesus. He's teaching on a, a crowd of people by the sea, it says, the Sea of Galilee. That's where a lot of his ministry took place. And we know that the main, what the main message of his teaching was, because already in Mark's gospel, he's described what Jesus was saying when he, when he started his public ministry. Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's a summary of his message, his teaching, all of his parables, all of his other things he's saying. They're moving in that direction of saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, at this time, the gospel, which is the good news of salvation, hadn't been fully revealed in all of its details. On this side of history, we know the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. We know that that's what had to take place in order for us to be reconciled to God, in order for us to be forgiven and made right and given eternal life. But, but the cross hadn't happened yet at this point. So, so what is the gospel that Jesus is declaring and teaching by the side of, the, of Galilee, the sea? Well, what he's doing is he's declaring that God is now bringing the long-awaited salvation that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. He's saying, now is the time. All those things you read about, that there would be a son of David on the throne and, and so forth. There would be a prophet like Moses. There would be this deliverance from evil. All of that stuff is now coming. It's here. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The, the realm of his goodness and his influence and his rule. He's declaring that. And so he's saying, get ready. Get ready for it. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your sins and align yourself with this coming kingdom. And Jesus is at the center of the whole thing. And then as, as the gospel proceeds, as his life proceeds, we start to see how he is the center of the whole thing and how that salvation is going to come. But it's going to come through him. That's the kind of thing Jesus is teaching the crowds by the Sea of Galilee. It was stirring up excitement. The, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That's one of the great Christmas carols. 
O holy night. There's excitement that Jesus has appeared on the scene. Even if they don't all know what it all means yet, they know, okay, the kingdom of God is here. So he's teaching by the sea. Apparently he leaves the shore and he heads back to the local city because he passes by a tax collector's booth. A tax booth wasn't located out on the shore of the sea. It was located in the the place of commerce where people are buying and selling things because, like in our day, you know, the government needs a cut <laughs> of what you make. So that's what they did. That was, that was the IRS <laughs> outpost in Capernaum. Uh, there's a tax booth, and as you're buying and selling, you've got to stop by there, and you've got to give them something of what you make or what, or what it's worth that you're about to sell. So Jesus passes by one of these places, and this is where a really revolutionary things, thing takes place. He calls a tax collector to follow him. <clears throat> now, to understand why that was shocking, we need some background. People hated these tax booths. Like, we don't have a great love for the IRS either. Um, but this was even worse than the IRS, right? Um, because the system of collecting taxes was institutionalized robbery. It, it was state-sponsored theft. <laughs> the way it worked was a person bid for the position of tax collector. They would, they would bid, here's how much I can make for you. Whoever has the highest bid gets to be the tax collector. So it's a system that, okay, once you have matched your bid, once you've paid that, you can keep everything else. So it rewards greed because everything that you charge, you're going to get now. And you can charge as much as you want, whatever you can get away with. And so, yeah, okay, I gave the government the 100, and now I can charge 200. And so it rewards greed. There's no restrictions to it. And they have the backing of the Roman government, so you can't do anything about it. You pay whatever they say, which is why tax collectors got rich. And then to make matters worse, the tax collector was usually a local, a local Jewish man. And so he was viewed as a traitor. He's, he's joined the enemy. He's getting rich off of his own people's backs so he's despised. He would be excommunicated from the synagogue for that. He wouldn't really be within the life of the Jewish people. He was considered a disgrace to his family. This was the situation of Levi, also known as Matthew, sitting in the tax booth. So imagine the shock to the disciples when Jesus says to Levi, follow me. Join our band. I mean, he's got at least four fishermen who probably paid taxes to this same guy. <laughs> they had to sell fish somewhere. They had to go to tax booth. They would not have called out to Levi, yeah, join us. No, they think you're despised. You don't fraternize with people like that, much less seek them out and invite them to be part of this privileged group in close relationship with Jesus. That was unexpected and unwanted. And then to ramp up the radical nature of this, the next thing that happens is that Jesus and the disciples, probably dragging their feet, 
go to Levi's house where he holds a banquet for many tax collectors. <laughs> now they're in the midst of all these people that they despise. And there's also what the text calls sinners there, which doesn't just mean the theological concept of a person who sins, but it had, it had a meaning in that day. It, it was like the word riffraff now. Uh, people who are disreputable, people who are undesirable, people you don't want to associate with because they don't, they don't follow. At that time, the Jewish law and Jewish custom, they were clearly kind of what we'd call the unchurched. And so these are the people that Levi knows because he's an outcast, and so this is the fellowship of the outcast. This is the fellowship of the people who are disreputable. Where else are you going to find friends except amongst them? So as soon as he follows Jesus, he's like, I'm going to invite my friends over. And who are they? They're more disreputable people like him. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. They don't want to be there. They're having a meal with people they, they naturally despise, but they're following Jesus, so they have to go there. It's uncomfortable. It's revolutionary. Well, this reveals a few things to us by implication. First of all, it reveals the heart of God for us. In ourselves, in our natural condition, we are the riffraff. <laughs> we are the disreputable people because we know from Romans 3 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God that's me, that's you none is righteous, no not one according to Romans 3.10 if we're honest we know we can relate to Levi and his cohorts we're cut from the same cloth have you ever put your own goals ahead of, ahead of other people? have you ever benefited from somebody else who had to suffer for your sake? I mean, have you ever been consumed with your own life and your own goal? And, you know, we can, we can relate to Levi. We've ignored other people's needs. We've done and said things we don't want to talk about. But God, our Creator, knowing our sin and brokenness, seeing us in the very act, like Levi in his tax booth, still pursues us, still calls to us, come, follow me. Enjoy relationship with me. And this is beautifully portrayed, what God has in mind. It's portrayed in this banquet at Levi's house. You've got Jesus reclining at the table with the, the sinners. It's this picture of a banquet of salvation, of table fellowship with God. The, the night before Jesus was crucified, when they were eating the Passover supper, he said to his disciples, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So they're having this banquet, Jesus amongst them all, and the disciples there, and, and it's this foretaste or this picture of this banquet that God is going to have with all who follow Christ. Just a little taste of it. What a great thing that God does for riffraff. <laughs> Here's another implication, though. If you're a Jesus follower, 
Jesus is going to lead you into uncomfortable situations like this. Because followers don't get to decide where they're going. <laughs> and Jesus says, here's where I want you to be. I want you to be with the riffraff. You know what that's like, too, because you are one. <laughs> the disciples were with him in the room, and it wasn't their idea. But where Jesus goes, his disciples goes, and he goes to the despised people. He goes to the outsiders. He goes to the unchurched. Because that's who he calls to follow him. And that's going to be uncomfortable. Think, what kinds of people would you be uncomfortable eating with? Like getting close to. Is it the person with the Biden 2024 sticker on their bumper? Or the Trump 2024 sticker, depending on your politics? Is it a person in the LBGTQ community? Is it a person with a really dysfunctional family situation or with a foul mouth or you fill in the blank of the person that you'd be very uncomfortable with? Jesus moves towards people like that. He leads us into situations where we're unfamiliar, where we're uncomfortable but he, meet, he leads us there because no one is beyond his mercy. If that wasn't the case, I know I never would have become a Christian. Because my story is, I was, I was the college student just ready to do my thing, ready to get my degree, ready to have my success in my life. But Jesus kept sending people to me. Three semesters in a row. People wouldn't leave me alone. They kept coming with the gospel. Until I believed. Following Jesus means moving towards unbelievers, being one of those people that he sends to say something to a guy like me. <clears throat> Levi turned out to be what missionaries call a person of peace. That's somebody who's open to the gospel, and then they have this network of other unbelieving friends. And so if you get to know the person of peace then they also introduce you to the whole network of friends. And so there's this possibility of bringing the gospel to a whole bunch of people. It's what they're doing in Isan, the, the Englands. They look for a person of peace, a guy that's like receptive, and then that guy knows all these other unbelievers. And so they get into the community. A church can be planted out of that. Uh, that's who Levi turned out to be. But you don't know that that's who he is unless you go and you talk to him. <laughs> it's going to be uncomfortable at first. It takes reaching out to people that we'd rather avoid, but there are people of peace out there and people probably in our lives who only need an invitation to a meal, only need a call uh, for us to discover that really God is at work there and for them to discover that Jesus is the answer that they've been looking for. That's what brought Jesus and his disciples into the room with the despised people of the time. Now, here's what happened as they were eating with the people. Um, because God's ways are so countercultural, there's usually some pushback. So what happens next is a displeased protest. You shouldn't be doing this, basically. As the dinner progresses, the religious leaders find out about it, and they are identified in verse 16 as the scribes of the Pharisees. 
These are the experts in the law of Moses. These are the gatekeepers of Orthodox Judaism. These are the holy men who are supposed to embody the purest devotion to God. And they have a problem with Jesus eating with this disreputable group. They frame it as a question, but it's really an accusation. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? He shouldn't be doing this. He shouldn't be enjoying a meal in the house of a trader engaged in conversation and friendship and what we would, with what we would call today the unchurched, um, being consorting with these obviously bad people. It's what Jesus said in Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They meant that as an insult. So they protest. Jesus shouldn't be eating with them. Now, why do they think that way? Well, it's because it has the appearance of approval of their sins and possibly even participation in their sins. In the thinking of the religious people, God's people are to be holy, and your holiness is compromised if you consort with unholy people. So in their view, Jesus is making himself impure, he's stained, he's degraded by having social contact with these people. Maybe that thought has crossed your mind when you think of having your neighbor over for dinner, or a coworker or someone like that, you, you might be thinking, what will I be communicating to the neighbor if I do this? Will I be communicating everything's all fine, no matter what you do, it's all good? Will they think that I'm totally fine with the fact that they smoke weed or have a same-sex spouse or are Muslim? And, and what will my church, things, church friends think if I do that? Will they think I've gone over to the dark side? I've gone soft in my convictions. I'm being conformed to the world. Now, there needs to be some wise guidelines in place, <laughs> for sure. Some convictions that we have to hold if we're going to do this in a God-honoring way. But here's the reality. Non-Christians don't become Christians without contact with Christians without relationship with Christians. Paul said in Romans 10, 14, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Jesus set the example for us. He, he is the perfect and sinless Savior, and he both pursued the unchurched people of his day and ate with them in their home, and he remained pure. He was able to be friendly, move toward them, and still not compromise. And they somehow were okay with it. <laughs> and he was teaching his disciples to do this. He brought them with him. He set the example of what Paul said in Philippians 2.15. You are children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that is made blameless in Christ through faith in Him, counted righteous. You are that among, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So not children of God separated from the world, unengaged with non-believers, but in the midst of unbelievers. 
in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. God positions us to shine in the dark places with the light of the gospel and the character of Jesus Christ. The heart of our holy God is to come in person into the lives of unholy people like us so we can have an encounter with His person and His eternal kingdom. He really is a friend of sinners. He's not ashamed to engage with the disreputable, to get into the mess of people's lives because it's in that mess where there are souls that will awaken to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, who would have thought, the disciples wouldn't have thought this, who would have thought that that tax collector was going to one day write one of the Gospels? (laughs) But he did. And we don't know. The people that we're around, what would they become like? What might they do for God's kingdom? Because they're ready. They're the seed that's in good soil and it's going to grow fruit. So that's what Jesus leads us to do. He leads us into those places. But how do we do it? How do we pursue friendship and relationship with non-believers without approving of sin or joining with them in sin? How do we do that? Well, we at least know that it can be done because Jesus did it. (laughs) Let's start there. He was pure and holy, but he never approved of sin. He never compromised. He had real relationships with unholy people. But we're not Jesus. We're not sinless. We have our limitations and our temptations. So how do we do this? How do we pursue friendship and relationship with non-believers without approving of their choices or joining them in their worldview or their actions. Well, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert at this because I am not. I'm just trying to figure it out myself and trying to be obedient and do what it takes. But I think there are some wise guidelines that will we'll, help us here that we can draw from the passage. And I'll just name two that come to mind. The first one is realize that friendship with sinners is not sin. It's Christ-likeness. Just first have that category. Friendship with sinners is not sin. It's Christ-likeness. Friendliness does not equal approval. Friendliness does not equal compromise. Friendliness is a way to honor someone as made in the image of God and worthy of our neighbor love. Being a friend of sinners does not make you a sinner. It makes you more like Christ. Now, of course, the way we carry out that friendship can lead to compromise. Um, And our temptation to avoid conflict and hard conversations can be taken as approval of somebody's lifestyle and worldview because we're afraid to say anything. And our silence kind of communicates, well, you must be on the same page. That can happen, but friendship itself is not the compromise. It's, it's not the approval. It's just what it looks like to love your neighbor. So we befriend, we talk, we, we treat others like real human beings made in the image of God, people who have intrinsic worth because of that. And, and yes, that image is marred by sin, just as ours is, but that's why we move towards others, so they can encounter Jesus who can change that in them, even as he's changing it in us. Now, I would add this caveat. 
Proverbs warns us what kind of friendship you can form with someone who doesn't follow the Lord. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That speaks to the reality that the friends you choose will influence you. And the closer the friendship is, the more influence they have for good or bad. So choose wise friends, you'll be wiser. Choose foolish friends, you will be foolish. You will suffer harm. If you're in a relation, if you're in a friendship with a non-believer and they're having more influence on you than you are on them, it's time to reevaluate. If you're just getting dragged into the world and away from Christ, stop it. <laughs> in intervene with truth. And I'll get to that in a moment about how we do that. But, but just remember, there are limitations on what that friendship can look like. Your companions, your closest friends should be wise. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That should be, your inner circle should be believers. They are the ones that you want in your life influencing you the most. But out of that, there is a way to move toward friendship at another level, which is to be friendly, to engage, to care. This is also why it's good to get other believers involved as you're befriending a non-Christian because alone we face temptations. When other believers are involved, then we have help to resist temptation. And not only that, it's better for the non-believer to have conflict, con contact with not just one Christian, but with many. So I was at the pastor's conference uh, weeks ago, and I went to the evangelism breakout session. And Jim Donahue, which is, uh, he's like the traveling evangelist guy in Sovereign Grace Churches. He's written lots of material. He created courses. And they see a lot of people come to Christ in their church. And so he was like engaging us with how to, how to be more active in evangelism. And he said something that was really interesting. He says, as, uh, of all the people that he talks to who, who have become Christians and have joined their church, most of them will say part of how they got there was that they became aware of many Christians. They, they encountered Christians together. <clears throat> and he didn't mean Sunday morning. He meant like people's houses or serving projects or going to a baseball game together. Like they, they actually got to see that Christ makes a difference in a whole bunch of people and you're not just an outlier, but that there's something that happens to a bunch of people who follow Jesus. And then that becomes its own attraction where they think there, there must be something to this. So we don't want to do it just all alone. Uh, you know, support for that, John 13, 35. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There needs to be some context in which people can see that you actually have love for one another. Why not a Super Bowl party? Why not a Rockies game? Why not something at the park? That's where they can see it. We invite them into that. So first guideline, realize friendship is not compromise. That's just Christ-likeness. But there are some limits to how deep that friendship should be. If it's having more influence on you than the other way around, then it's time to reevaluate. Here's the second guideline, which is going to help with the first one, I think. Be an obvious Christian from the beginning. <laughs> 
be an obvious Christian from the beginning. A missionary friend once said something that stuck with me about how to relate to non-believers. He said, be spiritually obvious, not spiritually obnoxious. <clears throat> very easy to remember and very helpful, I think. Obvious, spiritually obvious, not obnoxious. In other words, just be real. Just be what you claim to be, a Christian. They're being real. <laughs> Why can't we be real? Why pretend we're something that we aren't? Don't change our language to eliminate any references to the Lord or the church or prayer or the Bible. If you talk about that stuff in normal conversation with others, why strip it out of our conversation when we're relating with non-believers? I think that's a familiar temptation, though. It is for me. We might first just get to know a person as a fellow human, and that's right, we have to start there, but we might not ever go beyond that. If we, go, if we keep going that way and we never bring up faith or Jesus or church, then, then the relationship gets founded on a deception, really. They'll think, you're totally fine. You're on the same page with them, whatever their lifestyle is or worldview is, when actually you have a very different worldview. And then it gets harder to bring Jesus into the conversation because the relationship wasn't founded on that awareness. Now the friendship has progressed on the assumption you're not a Christian, and so there's this new danger that if we say something, then the relationship will fall apart. <clears throat> at his dinner with Jesus, at, at the dinner with Jesus, those in attendance, they already knew what Jesus was about. His teaching, his miracles, they were well known. He wasn't there incognito. He was there in all of his holiness as well as all his compassion. There was no hiding who he was. What intrigued people was that even though here is this gospel preacher, this holy man, he also has genuine compassion for the people who are unholy, who are despised. That's a weird combination. We haven't seen that before. The scribes of the Pharisees don't act that way. But Jesus, you're like them, but you're not like them. I need to know more. I think I'll go to dinner with this guy. <clears throat> we want to follow his example and move towards him in friendship. Now, that doesn't mean you have to share the gospel on the first encounter, that every conversation has to steer in that direction. It just means being authentic. If you're a Christian, then be one in front of other people. Be open to the non-believer in your life. Here's how I tried to do that at, at Thanksgiving. Um, so we always invite a bunch of people over for Thanksgiving. And um, it turned out that we had maybe five or six non-believers there, which was about half of our guests outside of our family. So a pretty good chunk. And, uh, and they were from all different, all kinds of different you know, connections that we had. And I was really wondering, how do we make this an environment where, like, like Jesus and his disciples, where, like it, where we raise the flag, <laughs> this is what we're about, uh, Christians here, uh, but also we're communicating, but I'm for you, uh, I'm glad you're here, you're a friend. Like, how do we do that? So I was thinking about how to make that happen. So before we ate, here, here's what I, what I did. I said to the group something along these lines. So most of you know that I'm a Christian pastor, which is a, you know, a great thing that I've got to use. 
<laughs> I'm a Christian pastor. One of, the, one of the Christian ethics is hospitality, which we learned from Jesus, who welcomed everybody who came to Him. And we hope that you'll experience some of that welcome as we eat today. And then I prayed, and that was it. That was me raising the flag. Um, Maybe somebody else would have done more. That's what it came to my mind to do. But just raise the flag. Here's what our foundational convictions are. And then we treated people like any other friend. We engaged in conversation. We found out about their lives, celebrate the good things that happened with them, sympathize with them about the hard things that are happening. We do that with everybody. So we do it with them. And what made it easier for me to do that was that they already knew where I was coming from so they wouldn't interpret my friendship as something different than Christianity, but actually as part of my Christianity. They didn't interpret it as a full-on approval of whatever their lifestyle and worldview was because they know Christians think differently about things. And that was reaffirmed to me. I was talking with this single mom that we serve through Safe Families and I asked her what kind of games she liked to play because we were going to be playing some games. And she described this card game that she usually plays that's very risque and crude and kind of, kind of street stuff. I don't know, a little raw. Um, but she said, I didn't bring it, though, because I knew that wouldn't be appropriate in this setting. Like, I never told her what was appropriate in this setting. I never said, these are good games, these are bad games, and we never went over, like, you know, rules, and this is how decency looks. We've just been serving her, but she knew. She already has an idea about what Christians think, and Christians wouldn't like her game, right? She knows that I'm not necessarily going to approve of it. But what she doesn't know is, is it safe for me to be in your house? Is it safe for me to be a friend to you? Will you be a friend to me? Do you care? That's what she doesn't know until we have a meeting, have a, have a dinner, and then we, we spend time and we talk like real friends. So that's what we were trying to do. People know what Christians think, but what they don't know is whether or not you care about them. <clears throat> and the way they find out is if we treat them like real people. Value them as being made in God's image and do that as an obvious Christian. If we don't do that, or if we do do that, they won't interpret your friendliness as a blanket agreement about everything. They won't be surprised if you don't join with them in some behavior uh, they won't be surprised if you don't agree about some worldview. They won't be surprised if you say in conversation, well, I see that differently. Friendliness does not equal approval. Friendliness does not equal compromise. It's just a way of caring for other people and helping them encounter Christ. So, let's close with the last part of the account. Jesus responds to the displeased protest of the religious leaders. The last point is the action explained, which is, I came to call sinners. Let's hear verse 17 again in full. When Jesus heard it, they said to him, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is why Jesus was willing to eat with the people that the 
scribes despised. This is how he silences their protest. He uses logic they can understand and should understand if they really knew their Bibles. His explanation is basically this. Sinners need a Savior like sick people need a doctor. It isn't healthy people who need a doctor, right? It's sick people. That makes sense. Well, these people, these tax collectors and other disreputable people that you despise, they are sick people who need a doctor, except their sickness is not physical, it is spiritual. They need a spiritual doctor to heal their spiritual condition, which is sin. You'll notice that even though the religious leaders used the word sinner as an insult, Jesus didn't deny that that word was accurate in its definition. He uses the word too. I came to call sinners. That's what they are in actuality, what all of us are. These people at the banquet are sinners. Jesus came to break the power and penalty of sin in their lives. That's how the physician is going to do his work. See, Jesus didn't eat with disreputable people just because he was being nice. Nor did he eat with them to affirm that they were actually good people, and isn't it terrible that nobody likes you? No, he ate with them because sinners need a Savior, not just friendship. We saw in Mark's gospel, or Matthew's gospel last week, Jesus came to pay a ransom for sin, a price to, to free someone from the death sentence or captivity or slavery to sin. In our sinful condition, naturally, we don't just need kindness, we need forgiveness. We don't just need friends, we need salvation. Jesus came to call sinners like them and like us to repent and believe the gospel that we could enter the kingdom of God and have eternal life and loving relationship with Him. That's how He is a true friend of sinners. I came to call sinners to himself, to salvation. That's the gracious heart of God to all of us this morning. Whatever your life is like, there's an old hymn that said, softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. That's God's heart toward us and toward that person in your mind that you're thinking, I can never go there. <clears throat> There's a warning in this too, though. He said to the scribes of the Pharisees, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, who are the righteous in this story? Well, they're the people who don't think that they're sinners. Like the scribes. We're very religious. We're devout. We're the holy ones. We're the examples. Everybody else is low life, but we're, we have it going on. That's the people Jesus said, I didn't come to call. If that's who you think you are. The warning is, if you don't think you're a sinner, then you won't receive Jesus' call because you don't think you need it. And then you won't be forgiven your sins. Only the ones who know they are sick will look to the great physician to heal you. It's all about humbling ourselves and trusting Christ. But the good news is Jesus is calling. 
And if, he's, if you've accepted that call, then you will feast with him forever <laughs> in loving relationship with God himself. And that explains why Jesus came into the world, born in a stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It explains why Jesus ate with the despised people of the day. It explains why Jesus commissioned the church to preach the gospel to all nations until he returns. Because he came to call sinners to salvation. And he gives us the privilege to be a part of the process. And who knows what God will do with the person that you think, there's no way. <laughs> Paul, Saul of Tarsus, persecuting Christians, becomes the greatest missionary of all time. <laughs> we don't know, but God knows. And he says, just, just follow me. I'll take you in uncomfortable places, but I guarantee you it's going to be worth it. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for coming for us. We were dead in our trespasses. And I don't know, maybe some are still because they haven't trusted in you. But right now we ask you to change that. Let them hear the call and respond to it in faith and throw in our lot with you and walk the uncomfortable but rewarding path of following you in life and into the life to come where we will have that banquet. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing about Jesus, the friend of sinners. <laughs>